0: Welcome everyone to another episode of Joining the Threads podcast brought to you by Two Green Threads and with grateful acknowledgement to our supporters, the Foundation of National Parks and Wildlife and the International Fund of Animal Welfare. We're talking about a topic today that for wildlife volunteers is a core component of what it is that we do and how we're in a position to help wildlife. So today's podcast is about interactions with the public and for those that might be listening that aren't wildlife volunteers essentially this vital community service comes from the fact in the majority of cases where someone has noticed a wildlife in distress and they have called some sort of central phone number for a wildlife group that might be able to help there's actually a international fund of animal welfare app for new south wales at least um, that enables you to find your local group if you're driving on the road and come across an injured wildlife called wildlife rescue so that aside typically the interactions with the public come about as a result of someone noticing some wildlife and that really in the end is what makes the wildlife volunteer a first responder sector we're responding to calls that we don't know are going to come in what sort of number or with what sort of detail, with what sort of circumstances. In terms of numbers, just while we concentrate that on it for a second, as far as I can find, and I've tried to do a bit of research, there isn't actually a lot of information nationally on what the sort of numbers are that wildlife volunteers are responding to. But I have done a sort of state-by-state extrapolation, if you like. So I'm conservatively estimating that there's, probably around 350,000 calls per year outside of natural disasters that are being made to uh, wildlife groups or wildlife shelters or wildlife uh, volunteers to respond to a animal in distress. And I've gathered that number from what are two public numbers, the New South Wales Government number and Wildlife Victoria, and then I've extrapolated what are, might be numbers based on the number of wildlife volunteers in the other states, so we've got a lot of phone calls happening. And essentially someone has, has um, phoned in to a wildlife volunteer who's manning that number and has reported some sort of wildlife situation. And from there, the wildlife volunteer then tries to find the, um, an available and relevant and um, potentially specialized wildlife volunteer that can respond to the call. Cause of course it depends what it is. And we've got a wide range of types of calls that can happen. So we've potentially got a bird up a tree with some um, twine caught around its leg, or we've got a baby bird at the bottom of a tree. We might have a possum up a chimney, or we might have an animal hit on the side of the road or an animal caught in a fence. Um, We might have a snake that's being trapped somewhere in um, some netting that's covering a nursery, for example, a uh, fruit nursery, fruit tree nursery. So there's a really, really wide range of the types of calls that are going to occur. And from there, the wildlife volunteer then calls out. So what we wanted to concentrate on is We typically, for training for our wildlife volunteers, talk a fair bit about, well, what do you do to physically rescue the sort of animal circumstance that you find yourself in? But what we're probably not spending a lot of time on is what about the people side of that, your reactions, your responses, the people that you are dealing with, and what does that mean? So I'm joined today by Haley Yee, a psychologist, who's going to actually help us have these conversations uh, in terms of uh, what might be ways that we can personally prepare ourselves or for the types of situations that we might face and how we handle those. So if I can offer a very warm welcome, Haley, and thank you so much for joining us today.
1: Hi Susie, thank you. Thanks for having me.
0: That's all right. So um, I guess in terms of the types of interactions that we've talked about, one of the ways I thought it might be useful, if you're comfortable, Hayley, is breaking it up, if you like, in sort of three time zones. There's a sort mm. of pre-rescue, yes. self-preparation-y type um, time frame, and then there's yes. the actual situation on the ground, um, so responding to that, and then there's post the rescue. So if you don't mind, I wondered whether we started to um, talk through some of those. But before I get into that, I did want to recognise that a lot of the calls to wildlife volunteers aren't necessarily always going to be horribly um, difficult or confronting. Some of them are very pleasant with amazing people who express great joy and connection Um, with the wildlife and their environment and obviously those are fantastic rescues to be involved in assuming the animal is not um, terribly injured and able to be assisted and you know it's one of those things that as a wildlife volunteer you often get a lot of return joy out of that there is a lot of people in this world that actually do care about the environment and their their animals that they interact with, so really good examples is you know oh this is one of my magpies that I see every year that come and rests um, that come and makes a nest in that tree or that's the little bunch of ringtar possums that I'm really aware of that um, live in my local area and often come by and visit and I see at sunset. Um, so there's some oh, beautiful nice. yeah there's yeah. some beautiful interactions where people really do have a strong connection with the environment that they live with and the wildlife that they exhibit that, um, you know, home base with. And I think that's Mm. beautiful because it really does show um, sometimes it can be hard that we feel people aren't necessarily connecting or supporting um, animals or wildlife. But, you know, those sort of circumstances are just gorgeous.
1: Yeah. Yeah, that's what makes it worth it, doesn't it? But then I'm sure we get the odd interaction where somebody is quite either distressed or maybe getting quite aggressive as well because they don't really understand, they don't share that same compassion for animals. So I hope to share some tips in how to manage those situations and manage um, the volunteers' wellbeing through all of that. That's
0: great. Yeah, thanks, Hayley. And I think that's um, hopefully what we'll be able to, to have um, people get some benefit from today? Because it's, as I said, I think at the beginning, it's a space that sometimes as wildlife volunteers um, we don't spend a lot of time in. So if I wanted to pick up on that sort of first time element of self-preparation, that sort of in advance of going on a rescue, what might be some of the key things that we want to draw out in that?
1: Yeah, so I recommend... I'm guessing that the individual, the volunteer would be driving to the place and it could be a long drive. I recommend in that drive, listen to some good music and just prepare the mind, because I know that there could be that rush of adrenaline, especially when the volunteer might feel like they have to be in a hurry and attend to an urgent situation and then not really thinking about what they're going to do and so maybe taking that time to take a few breaths take some deep breaths listen to some good music and be in a good headspace to have a plan in regards to rescuing the animal which I'm sure comes so naturally to everyone as part of two green threads but also in what they what they might say or manage the situation Um, especially if there might be a bit of distress from the other person.
0: So I just wanted to pick up because I think what I'm hearing you say is um, the the first responder element means that we're dealing with a high level of uncertainty and unpredictability. Mm. And I guess what we're trying to do is what are the ways that we can, if you like, undermine that a little bit and counter that a little bit. So, um, some, you know, like you said, some tips on on. How you're preparing yourself as you as you get there? I guess it's about good habits, isn't it, and healthy
1: practices. Yeah. Yeah, having a routine for what to do, even the moment you get into the car. That way, you're preparing for as much of the uncertainty as possible. So that might look like have your favorite playlist going, or maybe make the phone call to a buddy, maybe a buddy that you had met at orientation, or maybe a personal support buddy, having somebody who you can maybe debrief with afterwards or give them a heads up that that's where you're going and have that call early so that just in case you go into an area where there is no reception. Making sure that your phone is fully charged, maybe even having a um, a journal, a log where you can write down maybe some some notes based on what happened. So being well-supported uh, with, you know, just the basics, having a phone charged and, and, you know, having good music and then making the right phone calls to the people is, is at least a good routine to have.
0: Because what's happening in terms of how the brain works? What, what's happening at that typical point in time?
1: Well, in a rush, we're not thinking we're not thinking about any practical strategies. We're just thinking of the animal that we need to rescue and then not thinking about your own well-being, maybe rushing and then maybe getting into an accident or risking that. So the brain is, is really tunnel vision focused on trying to get to that animal and forget about everything else. But we might need those little details later down the track. So, you know, being able to make that phone call and having the phone at hand or having that pen and paper or that yeah and, and like
0: you, like you said, the sort of safety elements about letting someone know where you're going and how long you might be and some actions if if you haven't reported back that you're you're back safe so um yeah some of those sort of practical things you know making sure that you've got some water with you in case there's a you know extended period of time that you hadn't planned on um, or some snacks in the car some healthy snacks or something yeah Um, yeah yeah, so part of that self-preparation I guess what I'm hearing you say Hayley is that if we get some routine and habits in place we can sort of downplay what might be that um, massive rush of adrenaline to you know, try and sort this situation out.
1: Yeah, and I do recommend printing off a list of the phone numbers and maybe some of the techniques that we might be going through or maybe the, you know, volunteer can create their own routine and doing that in their own time so that they can print that off and then have that in the car so they can refer back to it because in that moment of rush, we forget. That's what happens. The brain just forgets. But having something printed off in the car is an easy reference.
0: Yeah, I think that's a really good tip, Haley. and I think uh, what we might do as a bit of a resource to this podcast is actually mm. create um, a bit of a poster sheet that can be printed that offers some um, dot points picking up on what we've talked about and people can add to them, of course. And that way, like you said, just print it off and put it in the car, pull it out of the glove box as you're driving somewhere and just do a bit of a refresh Yeah. On that. Um, there's actually a a step-by-step process that I know our local trainer for my local wildlife group, who's exceptionally experienced in rescues, talks through a process that she calls SAPA. And it's a preparation process, um, which means S, so S-A-P-A-R, and it stands for Stop, Assess, Plan, Act, and then report or retreat and mm, okay I think that's a really good um, preparation technique for what you're going through in terms of the animal rescue um, and, and planning that because some of the circumstances that you might arrive at can sometimes require a, a fair bit of sort of logistical maneuvering or equipment or additional help um, but I think there's an element to that SAPA, stop, assess, plan, act and report or retreat that would also be relevant for the people side of looking after and responding to wildlife. What do
1: you reckon? Yeah, yeah, I think so. I think especially with the plan component that um, we can even plan in advance how we might respond to people. Are we going to respond? There are three different ways broad categories of how we can respond to people the first being passive should we just say nothing and keep the peace maybe not trigger any further aggression if we know that it's the cause come from somebody who might be quite aggressive or should we then be aggressive you know does the situation warrant us being aggressive maybe standing up for the animals rights and and fighting for that cause or being assertive now being assertive is trying to make a statement respectfully and with confidence and trying to deliver that it takes a lot of cognitive effort so imagine trying to implement a plan for rescuing an animal and managing another person's distress or aggression or uncertain reaction and then and then the volunteer's own uncertainty and the anxiety that might come with that so there's actually a lot that goes through the mind in that drive but I do encourage trying to just work out okay what is my passive response going to look like what's my aggressive response going to look like what's my assertive response going to look like which one do I feel most comfortable with in this situation with what I know and am I willing to bear the consequences of each of them and that way the the individual is able to make a decision or an informed decision so they feel that they're a little bit more in control. And I think that's really helpful.
0: It definitely part is the preparation sort of side of it, um, Hayley, in terms of as you're approaching a situation and, and, like you said, running through in your mind what might be circumstances. The only one I'd like to add to that is I guess those three types of reactions are relevant for when you're facing some sort of difficult circumstance, whether that's because yes. the person is, you know, um, really upset or angry. Um, but but sometimes they are actually beautifully engaged with the entire mm. process and very supportive and very um. Complimentary is not the right word, but they really are, you know, thank you so much for coming and I really appreciate that you're coming out and I've got this poor animal and I know this poor animal. So there's sometimes a sort of maybe a fourth layer where it's going to be a, a um, experience where you can strongly engage and you can educate um the person you know because sometimes that there is a whole lot of questions that they ask in terms of i don't understand why the bird baby bird would be here why wouldn't it be back with its mother or would this size joey normally be in someone's pouch or Mm. what would be the reasons that this animal would be um having these sorts of injuries so there's often ways that you can help educate or really strongly connect so there might be a sort of fourth reaction about if they're really supportive, you know, what are some of the things that I could um, help them learn about the sort of circumstance that they're seeing or encourage them to get more involved with wildlife or wildlife groups.
1: Okay, so in that case, then, we'd be encouraging the volunteers to think of what's the worst case scenario and what's the best case scenario yeah so yep. that they're able to balance that out because sometimes when there is that adrenaline rush as well the body or the brain is preparing for the worst case scenario just to as a protective mechanism but if in that drive try to regulate not just the worst case scenario but thinking okay what's the best that can come out of this and maybe uh, maybe it will be a good experience
0: yeah, so there's a sort of level of you don't have to necessarily always plan for the worst. And like yeah. we said at the beginning, what we're trying to do is counteract that uncertainty and unpredictability by having some routines and some pre-set um, thoughts that you might be able to draw on to give your mind structure and stability and your emotions some sort of ground ground anchoring point, if you like. Yeah, yeah, just um, preparation. The other one yeah. in terms of the S for the Zappa, Um, because the stop might not just be um, pull up at the situation and, you know, stop and make sure it's safe. Um, That's the other part of S as well. But also in terms of the people side of that, it could be pull up, take a few deep breaths. Mm. So just in respect to pulling up and like taking those deep breaths, Hayley, what what are you physically doing? How does that work in terms of what the body's um, sort of responding to from the breath? Mm.
1: yes well taking in those deep breaths actually helps slow down that nervous tension and that racing mind so try and try go jogging without breathing how long can we do that for well imagine that our mind and our thoughts are racing they're jogging and so they're gonna need a lot of oxygen to try and keep up with the pace, but also slow down our body's mechanisms, the racing heart and not being able to breathe properly. And that can get worked up into a panic attack or just this anxious state of mind. And when the brain or the nervous system becomes anxious, it starts to um, forget about everything else. We're not in a good headspace to to explore options or think flexibly because we tend to do that when When we're relaxed. So breathing itself is that single most effective mechanism that's immediate that we can do anytime, anywhere to try and slow down our body from getting worked up into an anxious state. Yeah, sometimes we forget to breathe,
0: don't we? (laughs) Proper breathing, not just the automatic things that's going on. Okay, so we're in now in terms of the three sort of time elements that we were breaking this conversation up into. um, We've talked preparation. We're talking now. We're responding to a situation. So we've arrived at a particular situation and it may well be that we arrive at... um, you know, an animal that's been hit by the side of the road or something on someone's property?
1: Yes, okay. So even when we arrive, you know, when the volunteer arrives at the scene, I do encourage a routine for that as well. And the first one being to check the individual as well as the animal just to see how they're coping and and that way you're acknowledging them. Now, that would help already to de-escalate any distress or aggression or reaction because some people might get quite triggered by, by somebody not acknowledging them at all. So that's number one. Now there are a couple of, well, there are a few de-escalation techniques for just managing the emotions of a situation and that being steady speech. So even when the other person might be quite distressed or maybe panicking, or maybe the volunteer's own emotions are on high. There's a lot of adrenaline and there's this rush, there's this urgency. And then having to talk through everything, Every you know, speech starts to get fast and then that starts to raise further escalation in emotions. And so instead, again, just like breathing helps to slow down the body's mechanisms, steady speech just helps to slow down the emotional mechanisms and to maintain composure throughout the whole situation. Have you tried that before? I have used
0: it and I have seen the benefit of that as a de-escalation technique. Obviously not necessarily always by itself, but it's a great starting point. And I think it's one that um, we should acknowledge is not necessarily easy when you're faced Mm. with either an exceptionally distressed um, individual who's really, really upset at um, the animal that they've harmed or and all the damage to their car or they might have some minor injuries but um I, I think it it's not may not be uh automatic or easy but it's it certainly is gonna help in terms yeah. of and particularly in those uh, situations where the person is angry or aggressive that's where you've almost got to go to a you know a sort of safe place inside and yeah. and slow yourself down isn't it
1: yeah. Yeah, so that at least helps you feel like you can maintain control in the conversation. And, and yeah, doing this is tough because it's regardless of how escalated the other person and you get to try and steady the speech. Another de-escalation technique is to verbalise some boundaries. So to be able to advise the other person what you will and won't tolerate. Now, this is only if we are dealing with some aggression and and maybe some escalation that interferes with attending to the animal. And and so verbalising the boundary of, you know, I'm, I'm unfortunately not able to manage that at the moment. Let's say it's a distressed person talking about their, complaining about their car being damaged and they're trying to, you know, take action against you or trying to take it out on you, okay, I'm not able to manage that at the moment as I really need to manage the care of this. And more, well, can we, can, can you please give me 10 minutes? So- and I think,
0: I think picking up on that, highly as well, because sometimes... It's not necessarily just an angry person or people that are indicating, you know, their um, utter frustration at the damage to their car. Um, but it's also sometimes, and quite understandably, people's natural reaction is to want to help. And mm. so they're, they're out of the car going, okay, well, I can do this and I can do that. And what about if I stand over here? And, and, and in a way, oh. you know, your interaction with them, this is one of those boundary elements, is to explain that, it's fantastic that you want to help and I really appreciate it on the top of what you've been through but at the moment there are some ways in which I know that I've I'm experienced in that I can help calm or um, rescue this animal that you may not be involved um, or understand and some of what you might do might trigger a reaction that I'm trying to stop Mm. so if we could you know, if I could just please ask you to, you know, um, hop over to the side of the road or get back in the car or would you mind just going to talk to the people that are gathering over there and asking them to stay back? You know, this is where um, sometimes the boundary isn't necessarily a sort of um, please stop doing what you're doing because it's um, something I won't accept. But it's, yeah. it's also just that reaction to this massive, um, you know, wonderful assistance that someone wants to provide.
1: Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So in that case, that might actually make it a lot more difficult to verbalise the boundary because we don't want to discourage the other person. Um, But but yeah, I think it's that's also going to be another area of practice as long along with steady speech. But verbalising boundaries that still appreciates the other person's help, but being able to um, deliver it in a nice way. To just educate them,
0: yeah, that, get, that gets you the boundary you need to be able to do the task at hand, if you like.
1: Yeah, yeah and that yeah. actually takes me to the last de-escalation technique, which is talk through your next step. So that is um, that's that's going to be a very helpful habit because what we don't want to do is create further uncertainty with the volunteer when they arrive at the scene. I'm sure they actually know what to do in responding to the animal. However, what about the public who, who, as you said, they might really want to be, they, they might really want to help and they might not know how, and maybe the volunteer just um, doesn't inform what they're about to do or why they're doing that. And that causes, you know, more frustration or uncertainty for the public bystander. So even when making a phone call, at least letting them know I'm going to make a phone call to my coordinator or to a a peer just to seek some further advice. And that way the public bystander doesn't, in their distress or, you know, their angst, they don't think that you're calling um, and making a phone call and talking about them. Because a lot of these things do happen when When people are in distress, um, we tend to think of the worst case scenario, and especially when somebody else is making a phone call, might think the worst of that. Um, Also, I will be attending to the animal to do a safety check, and I'll be on the phone to talk this through, so that's another example of just talking through the next step, and I'm going to go into my car just to grab something i'll be right back because again you never know with the public they might think that you're going into the car to get a gun or you know you know they never know what what you're going to do next so well in in
0: some circumstances from a wildlife point of view because um the mass majority of occasions outside of metropolitan circumstances don't have rangers. so in fact it's volunteer people that are euthanizing you know large mammals on the side of the road so even just saying to them i need to go and get my firearm can i ask you to retreat you know there there is going to be a sound you know you might want to cover your ears um so i think in terms of talking through that next step that's that's brilliant in terms of trying to give people that reassurance of what's coming again we're trying to sort of undo that unpredictability and uncertainty Mm. one of the circumstances we probably haven't covered off in those three steps is the types of interactions where people are strongly expressing value statements about their feelings about animals Mm. um, or their feelings about the worth of a particular species you know there's Um, way too many kangaroos or uh, Mm. who cares it's just a possum Um, what about those sort of circumstances when you are trying to um, you know regulate your your own feelings and reactions you know that that might bring a response from you Um, I guess it's in one way sort of fits into a little bit of verbalized boundaries but it's also about that talking and conversation element you know how do what do we do in those circumstances
1: yeah I would say to try not react to that because at the end of the day everyone has different opinions and maybe that person who is expressing real indifference and apathy and carelessness just has not been educated properly. So maybe talking through the next step might give an opportunity to that person to understand the value of wildlife and to really see the, um, the life in this creature and start to appreciate it because it's you're you're sharing a part of your heart. You know, you're sharing a part of your care and value. Maybe they've never seen that before. However, if, if, you know, we were to start to get into an argument with them, then they're never going to be able to see the wildlife world from our point of view. So I do just encourage the volunteer to, regardless of the other person's opinion accept that that's valid for them but this is an opportunity where by talking through my next step and educating them and being accepting of them maybe this might open their eyes.
0: Yeah and I think um, trying to draw on the fact that you you still have a task at hand whatever that task is in front of you in terms of um, a rescue situation and so accepting sometimes that now is not the time or place to have those yes. value-based arguments um, and that, you know, potentially once the situation is resolved, there might be an opportunity or just accepting within ourselves that, you know, um, it's one of those things that it's not the time or place. So, mm. yeah. So, Haley, there's probably one situation we haven't covered off yet in the types of circumstances that we've talked through so far. And that is a situation where the wildlife rescuer is feeling unsafe, mm. uh, has, has come across a situation where the types of uh, things that they're seeing um, may, it may be because of where they are or the, the time of the day or night, um, they might be you know in the middle of nowhere, um, so it might be sparked by that. But it could also be sparked by the, aggressiveness um, of a person that they're intersecting with or sometimes also there are times where as a wildlife rescuer you actually see people do things to animals which you would rather not see and I'm not Mm. I'm not going to raise what sort of circumstances they are because I don't really believe in re-traumatizing people yeah Um, but sometimes there are circumstances where unfortunately there is some imagery involved that perhaps the wildlife rescuer would rather have not um, had play out in front of them. Can I just talk with you for a second? We'll go back to that sort of feeling of being unsafe. What, What would you say to our wildlife rescuer about that?
1: Yeah, I would recommend you do consider your safety and when you do feel unsafe, move with what your body is telling you to do if there's some kind of threat and it's triggering your nervous system and it's going to then it's going to elicit that adrenaline fight flight or freeze response and if you have been in if you've experienced that before then you kind of know how you respond in threatening situations but I'm guessing that as a wildlife carer there are a lot of new situations that emerge and you've just got to act quickly if your body's telling you to leave even if it's leaving the animal and not able to rescue the animal but there's maybe somebody who's very aggressive and your life is in danger then leave
0: right okay so listening to your body like you said in terms of the way it's trying to tell you yeah If you have then removed yourself from that from the situation, and it's okay to do that. It really is in terms of, um, like you said, responding to what your um, mind and body is telling you. What about then on the way um, leaving that situation? There are potentially imagery that you're playing over and over and over in your head. What what do you do with that? Because it can become pretty you know, full on in terms of a movie reel that doesn't stop playing. Mm. And there's sometimes some intensity around that. How do you, do you do you try and shut it down? Do you distract yourself? What's what's the right way to work through that?
1: Yeah, that's tough because it does differ from person to person. The key is to understand how your brain, body, and mind reacts when you are quite escalated and overwhelmed by something. Some for some shutting down is quite natural and i'd say don't fight that because if shutting down means that your mind isn't going to get distracted while you're driving yourself home and it keeps you safe then just shut down try not to replay it until you're in a safe space either being able to see your friends and family and debrief with them or even with a telephone counselor or with a therapist then you can revisit that memory but but if, if you are somebody who does, you know, who can't, can't get that out of mind, really replay it, then try not to drive. At least try and take a few deep breaths, you know, relax a bit, provided that you're safe being in the car, just until you can relax. Relax your nerves and try to turn on some music um, because it's not, it's very unhealthy to just be replaying the memory over and over again. And I think that's where we can pick up what we
0: talked before about the breathing and the noticing of what's around you and and you know what you're what you're seeing and what you're hearing and what mm. reconnecting with your senses to try and bring you back into the present is that yeah would that be a good description in terms of yeah That sort of physical processes.
1: Yeah, definitely. And like you said as
0: well, picking up on like you could call someone. I think we've mentioned before about, you know, potentially there's no reason why you can't call lifeline or call a buddy or call someone to just go, Would you mind if I chatted to you while I um, you know, drove or you know, had someone to talk through? Um yeah, I guess I guess it's an interesting situation and it's coupled with probably also what might be feelings of guilt, I guess, in terms mm. of leaving the animal or not being able to potentially save it. You might have a whole lot of uh, internal thought processes going on. Wh- what about how and what to do
1: with those? Yeah, that's tough because guilt is one of those emotions that's such a mystery I don't think psychology has all the answers or a step-by-step process on how to resolve guilt because guilt really depends on the individual's conscience. The stronger your conscience, the stronger the guilt. So in that moment, just be grateful that you've got a strong conscience because that is what leads an individual to feel more compassion. And that's what attracts these people to these caring industries whereas psychopaths who do the opposite they kill animals they kill people they have no guilt they've got no conscience so i think the least we can do is be grateful for our mind and our heart in being able to experience guilt it's a gift and the best way to resolve through that is going to be over time over time find the right therapist who you can journey through exploring what your level of guilt is, why you feel guilty, has this been tr- triggered by some other incident in life, and try to find your own personal tools that work best for you and I, I, there's a sort of scale
0: of self responsibility that you're taking on, isn't there really as part mm. of that.
1: Um, yeah it, it oh, yeah, I do see that it comes from an individual taking excessive responsibility more than what they should. And so I hope that over time, as part of the therapy process or reprocessing, revisiting that situation, that the individual can understand it. there are other players in the mix who have their responsibility. The other person who might be making them feel unsafe, they have a responsibility. They, They were responsible for not making you feel so threatened. So why not give back some of the responsibility to the other people in that situation rather than taking it upon yourself 110%. Yeah, yeah.
0: Well, there's some good tips there, Hailey, because we have picked up on the sorts of circumstances where sometimes they're positive that you're mm-hmm. interacting with um, people on a wildlife rescue, but sometimes they're not so. And I guess this is the other extreme of it that it was important to cover off as well. So thanks for journeying through that. And I I think we'll move on to um, talking a little bit more about how a wildlife carer that is exceptionally experienced in rescuing actually offered her own advice in terms of uh, what she thought for when um, she's had a think about, you know, all the rescue situations she's in. So I I might just play that in
2: a sec. These are the sorts of skills I think that they that would be most useful for them when they're dealing with the public, what would they be? This is probably going to sound silly, but empathy for whomever's in front of them. Okay. So irrelevant of their views, and it's taken me a lot of years to get there. You don't have to adopt their views, you don't even have to agree with their views, but you do need to acknowledge that they're suffering. Yes. So be it because their car's damp, be it because they're upset or because the animal is upset. It doesn't matter. At the end of the day, their view is as valid as yours, Mm -hmm. even though you might not like that, um, and therefore they deserve respect. And you don't have to take it on board and go away with it. Hard not to, but um, focus on the task at hand and how you're going to get it done safely. And if that means you've got to swallow your pride and go, yeah, there are a lot around doesn't mean you've got to say that's an issue you're just acknowledging that there are a lot around which for them is an appeasement and gives you a working base of okay now we can actually have some sort of conversation that might be meaningful and you may may now you know be more compliant Mm. which is what it's really about is me getting out of there safely getting the animal out of there safely keeping everyone around you safe and not making that person feel worse than they are because it's going to go one way or the other either they're just going to lose the plot completely and then you've got to manage that, or they're just going to get aggro to the point of want. You know, you're going to be scared.
0: So I think that picks up really nicely, Haley, in terms of that those sort of circumstances where you know, like you said, you're trying to you know, steady your speech, verbalise your boundaries, and talk through your next step. But doing that with empathy, you know, I think that was yeah, the advice, you know, that I
1: heard. Yeah, and acceptance. Yeah, I don't think we can ever change people's minds, especially not immediately. So not giving that too much attention
0: yeah not in heightened circumstances often
1: yeah (laughs) yeah yeah, exactly yeah yeah and I think that's so important that just that acceptance um and and therefore let it be but I've got a job to do like you said I've got a job to do I've got to rescue this animal and then maybe yeah revisit that with that person later
0: Yeah, if the the opportunity presents. So what about we're moving now into that sort of third time-based element, which is um, post a rescue. Um, What are some of the tips that we might want to keep in mind with that?
1: Yes. So, again, we want to make that drive home, not just about um, avoiding thinking about it as much as, You know, that's quite a natural mechanism as well. You know, just don't think about it. But to actually debrief with somebody. Now, this is provided that there is range. Um, It'd be helpful to debrief with a buddy within the volunteer group if, if possible, or even with somebody who kind of who knew that what you were going to attend to, or even one of the support lines. And let yourself cry. You know, allow the emotions that were stirred up to be expressed because once it's out, you can then move on to the next, you know, stage in the emotional processing um, stage of, of then, Okay, I've expressed my emotion. It's okay to cry. I'm human. I do care about this animal. I'm crying because it's connected to my values and then move into accepting and then being able to debrief and maybe learn from it. And so calling up Lifeline for 10 minutes, I think, is just as good.
0: Yeah, it doesn't have to be a a wildlife buddy, does it? But, I mean, obviously that sometimes helps in terms of someone else who understands what you've been through. And it picks up a little bit on that. Um, you know, from that preparation step point of view that we said maybe, you know, you call someone if you've got a buddy, maybe maybe find someone that you can call and just say, I'm going to call you for a second and just say, I'm on my way to a rescue. And then when I call back, if you've got time, maybe we could just spend a few minutes. Why is there benefit in debriefing? What happens from
1: that? It's the outlet. I think being able to process the experience and put it into words is very powerful for our motions to then have that outlet as well. And for somebody to hear us, like just for somebody to listen in itself, because I've um, I'm aware that a lot of the volunteers are doing this on their own. And so they've, they've managed through quite a tough situation on their own, regardless of whether there's been any distress from the public, but it's having to manage the uncertainty and attend to the animal and then drive back home on their own having somebody to listen to their experience and feel a bit of appreciation is powerful
0: and I think there were two other points in the discussion we were having before we pressed record Hayley that I thought were really beautiful in terms of how you express them that we should put in here as part of a sort of post event and that is to acknowledge your contribution in helping the wildlife even if it didn't work out how you wanted you've done your very best. You're responding to a situation um, and trying to help the animals in the best possible way that you can. So some sort of level of um, helping to undo a little bit what might be some self-criticism going on, just particularly in that initial aftermath, because that can be reinforced quite strongly otherwise. So we want to back that off a bit, don't we?
1: Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Um, A lot of these situations won't go as planned, and so acknowledging your contribution is is very powerful. Giving yourself that um, appreciation and that you know I've done the best I can, and and I will continue to do the best I can. I think giving that ongoing ongoing encouragement to the self is very powerful. and And then after that, you can then relax. You know, take the deep breath in. And again, listen to your favourite music or podcast and tune into the senses, what you see, what you smell, what you hear, because I'm sure going out to these animals, the drives are actually quite nice and that there's a lot of, um, of nice views to take in. But Oh well, yeah, little
0: little moments of appreciation about some beautiful yeah. mark on a tree or yeah. there's, a, there's a bird flying overhead and what sort of bird was that um, or the types of native grasses that are growing beside the road. This is assuming we're in some sort of semi-rural, I suppose. Yeah. But even in the metropolitan, there are often some nice tree sort of areas. The other thing I wanted to mention that you had said, which I just thought was really, really beautiful to remember and probably a good way to wrap up this sort of third time component because we're probably getting to the end of our recording, and that is yep. to remember people's reactions are diverse and are usually yes. towards the situation of uncertainty and inconvenience rather than towards you or the animal. Yeah. I just thought it was beautifully expressed, Hayley.
1: Yeah. Yeah, definitely. So remembering people's reactions are diverse and are usually towards the situation of uncertainty especially when they actually know nothing about the animal and they think that the animal is a threat and maybe you know what what happened to their own property and and they're just frustrated about that but the volunteer ends up being bearing the brunt of that so trying not to take that um personally and that different people will re- react differently and that's not a reflection of you and yep. it's it's um it's not something that we can control either
0: no and i think um you know just in terms of trying to sort of draw this to a close gosh there's been a lot a lot of practical information that we've tried to cover here today and also give some sort of sense of some of the steps and some of the routines and some of the tips that might be helpful to uh, build in some strengths and habits around the people resilience and approach to wildlife volunteer rescues, of which, as I said at the beginning, um, I've conservatively estimated based on a few Um, Known sources and then sort of extrapolated, we're talking over 350,000 calls a year. So there is a lot of people heading out doing these sort of rescues and. Um, I guess a really good way to end would be express an amazing amount of appreciation to the people that are doing this volunteer service. A lot of members of the public don't even know that it's a volunteer service. They think people are being paid to do this. Oh, Yeah, it's, it's actually interesting that a lot of people's reaction once they understand that you're a volunteer know quite obviously changes so a big shout out to the amazing wildlife volunteers that are out in our community providing this service both for the people and for the wildlife that need our assistance so if i can thank you so much hayley for your time today and your wise words my pleasure thanks for having me oh it's been great and i i'm hoping that the sorts of information that the information that we've talked about today um, gives people some practical steps in terms of approaching their wildlife rescue work uh, for the wildlife volunteer sector a final summary then for this joining the threads podcast episode of dealing with the public on wildlife rescue call outs first think of your wildlife rescue call out in three parts preparation rescue and post-rescue There is, of course, the arrangement for rescuing the wildlife at hand, but there's also the people side to be aware of, both on individual rescues, but also cumulatively over time, across multiple rescues and call-outs for yourself and others. Second, work out how to make SAPAR. Stop, assess, plan, act, report, retreat or repeat useful not just for approaching the call out for the rescue of the wildlife but also as a prompt for your own mental and emotional well-being and lastly consider the benefits of deep breath, whether that's informally with a buddy or family member or wildlife volunteer friend or formally through a wildlife group or through lifeline or a person you might want to see in a professional capacity you are after all providing a vital community service as a wildlife volunteer And if we look after how you are also feeling through these calls, then we can have a more sustainable self, a stronger community of volunteers, and we can keep helping wildlife into the future for a longer period of time. Thank you all for listening and stay safe on Wildlife Rescues. This is a wrap from Two Green Threads.